We can't turn the Wasatch Front into California, and uh, we won't do that if we elect good Republicans. So what changes will need to be made to avoid California-like gridlock in traffic and time-consuming commutes? I am running for governor because I do not want Utah to become California. That was Governor Spencer Cox, former Governor Gary Herbert, and Salt Lake County Council member Amy Winder Newton when she was running for governor. So basically, Sonia, if you want to be governor of Utah, you got to stick it to California. Exactly. But as much as Utah loves to hate on California, their legislatures are actually a lot more similar than you might think. They both have super majorities. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. On this episode of State Street, we're going to dive into how supermajorities work. A supermajority means that one party has two-thirds control of the state legislature. That gives the party a ton of power. You don't need to reach across the aisle to get things done. And you can even have several members of your party disagree with you and still pass the laws that you want. And if you do get everyone in your party on board, you have enough votes to override a governor's veto. Utah has a Republican supermajority, and California has a Democratic one. So yeah, they are different, but the process, well, that's pretty similar. In Utah, the Republican Party has had a supermajority in the legislature since 2000. They've had a simple majority, so 51% control or more, for decades. Right now, 78% of state lawmakers are Republicans here. That's a super-duper majority, Sonia. Definitely. <laughs> so we're going to explore how supermajorities work in Utah and in Utah's arch-nemesis, California. How that impacts what laws get passed, the role of minority parties, and how well the Utah legislature actually represents the people. To help us out, I called up Nicole Nixon. Nicole is a former Utah state politics reporter for KUER, our predecessor. Now she's a politics reporter at Cap Radio in California. Every time I cover the legislature in California, I just am struck by how similar they are with that supermajority dynamic. We heard about how much Utah state leaders do not want the state to be like California so they'd probably hate to hear that comparison. We can't turn the Wasatch Front into California. I actually am from California. And every time that state leaders say this, I giggle because I feel like I'm like an undercover Californian in the audience. You're a plant. I know. Even though I've been in Utah for almost two years, I still, I still kind of feel that way. But the funny thing is, I don't think California spends any time thinking about Utah. It's like that one line in Mean Girls. Why are you so obsessed with me? California just lives rent-free in Utah's head. Okay, Sonia, a Californian would say that. All right, all right. So, so anyway, Nicole sees a lot of similarities between Utah's Republican supermajority and California's Democratic supermajority. Having a supermajority, one of the perks of that is you get to basically do whatever you want and tamp down any opposition. The opposition, the minority party, the Democrats in Utah, the Republicans in California can try all they want. They can be loud, stand up and debate, but that's really the only power they have. When Nicole says getting loud, she's talking about making big animated speeches, walking off the floor. You know, the minority party doesn't really have voting power. 
So those stunts are tactics to draw attention to issues they disagree with. One way the legislatures are the same is that they make a lot of big decisions behind closed doors within their own party, within their own caucus. And there's lots of times in Utah when a bill makes it to the House floor and Democrats are like, um, excuse me, where did this come from? We had no say in writing this. Hello. And a good recent example is the critical race theory resolution back in May of this year. Utah Republicans wanted to send a message to the state school board that they wanted to ban certain ideas that they said were related to critical race theory. The Democrats basically said they hadn't been consulted about it, and so they just walked off the floor during the vote and then held a press conference outside the chamber. Here is Democratic Representative Carol Spackman-Moss during that presser. What should have happened and did happen yesterday in our education committee, we voted to study this over the interim. That's the way the process should work. Right after they walked out, Republican Representative Paul Ray criticized them for doing that. And here's what he said on the floor of the House. Speaker, I, I just want to publicly state how disappointing it is that a party would walk off the floor and refuse to represent the constituents that elected them. That walkout is an example of one strategy the super minority party can use to try to make a difference. Like we said earlier, making a lot of noise. Jim DeVacus is a Democrat from Salt Lake City, one of the most, if not the most, liberal member of the Utah legislature while he was in there. DeVacus was a state senator from 2013 to 2019, and Nicole remembers him very well. He was also very, his volume was very loud, so that helped. But he would, like, get up, make a loud point, use crazy analogies, very colorful language to try to get his point across, and then like kind of sit down in a huff. During his six years at the legislature, Jim DeBacchus passed just four bills. So basically, his whole job, at least at a surface level, was to be loud. One of DeBacchus's more memorable moments was back in 2018, a new drunk driving law was set to go into effect later that year, and it lowered the blood alcohol content you could legally drive with from 0.08 to 0.05. You know, we couldn't do a season about the basics of Utah politics if we didn't talk about liquor laws at least once. DeBacchus had introduced a bill at that time to delay that law from going into effect. He was scheduled to present the bill to a legislative committee at 8 in the morning at the state capitol, and Nicole was there. He comes in. He's wearing a suit. He, like, breezes up to the table, sits down. Another thing about Jim DeBacchus is he paid his own intern, so he always had somebody following him, like, with a smartphone taking videos and Facebook Live. So his staffer was, like, on the other side of the room, like panning back and forth between him and the committee. Maybe I should have caught then that something was up. I had breakfast, and then I went and had two more mosas, and I breathed at 0.5. So my entire presentation has been at 0.5. And you may say, well, that's evidence. That's evidence of why we want the law. Look at him. People started laughing in the room. It was like, so this just shows you, like, I'm at your new legal limit and I'm good enough to give a presentation before this serious panel of lawmakers. Um, I'm not sure a lot of people on the Senate committee were very happy about 
you know, being used that way as a kind of political stunt to make a point. Oh, my God. Hey, can we get some mimosas in here, please? So basically, that's Jim and his shenanigans in a nutshell. And it's like really demonstrating what his role was as the loudmouth of the Democratic super minority. Sonia, I've actually talked with Jim about this, and he really believes that this was the most important role for him and that the number of bills you pass as a Democrat just really doesn't matter that much. He told Radio West host Doug Fabrizio something similar in 2018. We have to stop measuring legislators' success by the number of bills they pass. I mean, that's the that's part of the reality. And you have people who introduced eighty bills. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's it's not a measure of your success. Sometimes it's a measure of your success when you tweak, when you go to others, when you consolidate, and you get the same things done. It's not like a giant scorecard. You know what? I got nine bills passed, or twenty, or eighty. That clogs up the system. On top of getting that message out, DeBacca said it was important to him to have good relationships with some of the Republican lawmakers up on the Hill. He and the House Speaker at the time, Greg Hughes, got along really well. And later in that episode of Radio West, he and Hughes have this back and forth where they basically gush about how much they love working together. DeBacchus is not in the legislature anymore, so loud objections maybe aren't as theatrical, but they're definitely still happening. Like the Democratic walkout over the critical race theory resolution that we mentioned earlier. And just like there's no DeBacchus replacement in the Utah legislature yet, Nicole says there's no one quite like Jim DeBacchus in California or maybe anywhere. Probably true. Uh, Republicans in California do make really impassioned speeches on the floor, calling out Democrats that don't really have any impact. But they did pull some shenanigans last year that actually did make a difference. It was the last night of the legislative session last year in 2020. Earlier that week, a Republican senator had tested positive for coronavirus. Also earlier that week, his entire group of GOP lawmakers had gotten together for a caucus lunch. Now, because of Senate COVID rules in California, they all had to join floor debates remotely via Zoom for the last week of the session. Which are like these midnight marathon sessions. So one thing these lawmakers did remotely is they used their little button to chime in on every single bill. And use their time and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm having technical difficulties. It went on for quite a while, actually, before it became apparent that they were doing this on purpose. Nicole says the Democrats caught on to that. So they tried to limit the number of speakers for each bill. And then Republicans got really mad about that. And then suddenly their microphones became muted and people were swearing and everyone had to take like a 90 minute break to like reset and cool down. It just ended up taking so much time on this critical last night of the session. It actually stopped some of these high priority Democratic bills on housing and police reform from passing. So if their intent was to hold off and stop some of these bills from passing, they were successful in that. So that's how the Republican super minority interferes with the Democrats in California And in Utah, you've got the Jim DeBacchus model of interference. And I don't want to say that all members of a super minority party do is make noise. They do pass bills, too, but it's it's a lot harder when they do manage to pass bills. It's not necessarily legislation that drastically changes the course of the state. 
Right. They're not passing like big tax reform packages. They're issues that have to be pretty palatable to Republicans, pretty non-controversial stuff that everyone can get on board with. Like there was a bill sponsored by a Democrat this year that made it illegal for police to share intimate images that they came across during an investigation unless it was necessary to do so. And that bill passed unanimously. So it's not that they aren't important bills. It's just that they aren't controversial. But one piece of legislation that was pretty big and led by a Democrat was the bail reform bill from 2020. I was honestly really surprised and impressed that the Democratic sponsor was able to get that passed, in part, I think, because it was co-sponsored by a Republican. But that type of legislation is the exception, not the rule. However, Republicans did end up actually reversing that this year, but they did get it passed. Okay, so lawmakers in a super minority party can try to wield power by making a lot of noise, loudly objecting to the supermajority, that Jim DeBacchus kind of thing. And it doesn't necessarily impact whether something passes, but it does send a message. And super minorities also pass laws that are not very controversial, but can still do something good for their constituents. The point is, Democrats in Utah and Republicans in California don't really have any power to represent their constituents on big, divisive issues beyond just kicking up dust about it. But Republicans in Utah and Democrats in California do have a lot more power to represent their constituents in those issues. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about just that, how well the Republican supermajority in Utah represents the people. You're listening to State Street. We'll be right back. Support for KUER comes from the local businesses and organizations that sponsor our programming. We're proud to partner with the community in support of local news and information that thousands of Utahns depend on every day. KUER sponsors reach public radio listeners on the air and online with information about the goods and services they provide. To learn more about sponsorship opportunities with KUER, visit SponsorKUER.org. You're listening to State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. So we heard from reporter Nicole Nixon, who used to cover Utah politics and now reports on California politics, about how Utah's Republican supermajority isn't really all that different from California's Democratic supermajority. The majority party can basically do whatever it wants, and the minority party doesn't really have any power. Still, People elected this Republican supermajority in Utah. How well do they represent their voters and the rest of the state? David Magleby is a retired political science professor at Brigham Young University, and I asked him about this. You're the guy. You know the things. (laughs) We're very glad to have you. I know a bit about it, yeah. (laughs) David is the guy who knows the things about the GOP supermajority. He specializes in partisan politics In fact, he wrote a textbook about government called Government by the People. And he's just been a keen observer of Utah politics since the 1980s. So, Sonia, do you remember those three ballot initiatives that voters approved in 2018? Yeah, totally. We are still talking about them today. We are still talking about them today because they're a big deal. David says they're a really good way to look at how well the legislature represents the will of the people. Well, it's a remarkable story. One of these ballot initiatives was the full Medicaid expansion, and that was made possible under Obamacare. The Utah legislature has always opposed fully expanding Medicaid. 
So a group of citizens sponsor an initiative to provide for Medicaid expansion in Utah. Guess what? Utah voters voted for it. Then there is a ballot initiative that same year to legalize medical cannabis. Which, David says, was a little bit of a snub to the legislature. Here we see a majority of Utahns saying medicinal marijuana is okay. The legislature had had multiple opportunities to do it itself and had refused. So a second rebuke. And the third one is an initiative to create an independent redistricting commission which advises the legislature on how to draw political districts. And that also passes. Now, the problem for all three of these initiatives is Utah has a very constricted constitutional limit on citizen initiatives. The legislature can ignore them, can override them. That's not true in many other states that have the process, but here it is. And so what's happened since with each of these three is there were subsequent legislative interventions that in some ways circumscribed those initiatives. Okay, let me translate that from political science speak. Basically, the legislature replaced the initiatives with their own bills and changed them to varying degrees. So the Medicaid expansion issue, for example, the legislature repealed that ballot initiative and replaced it with a program that gave health coverage to tens of thousands fewer people. But then the anti-gerrymandering redistricting initiative mostly just got these technical changes. Every time this happens up on Capitol Hill, there are obviously people pushing back on it, saying that the legislature is going against the will of the people. And then you have lawmakers saying they just really need to make these changes to do what's right for the state. Lawmakers have also gotten involved with citizen initiatives on the front end of the process as well. I think the takeaway is the citizens expressed displeasure, at least indirectly, and I would argue probably directly with the legislature, in passing those three. The legislature has retaliated by saying, okay, well, you get to do that. Now we're going to make it harder for you to ever do an initiative again. Magleby's talking about some recent changes the legislature made to the requirements to get an initiative on the ballot. This year, for example, they passed a law that made it illegal to pay signature gatherers per signature, but only for initiatives, not for trying to get a candidate on the ballot. And lawmakers in support of this said they were concerned that people were stretching the truth about an initiative just so they could get more people to sign it and therefore earn more money. And they didn't want to incentivize that kind of behavior by allowing people to get paid by signature. But David sees their motives differently. So there's been a legislative counter move to say, nope, voters, citizens, we're in charge. I think it says the legislature in the majority is out of touch. That's a bold statement, but I think there's good evidence for it. And the numbers also provide some evidence that the legislature is at the very least, not totally representative of the population. So let's take a look at some of the demographics here in the state. Let's start with party breakdown. According to polls, just over half of Utah voters are Republican or lean Republican. So that's still a majority, but not a supermajority, which needs two-thirds, and definitely less than the nearly 80 percent of seats that Republicans have in the legislature. And that's just one indicator of how well or unwell the GOP supermajority represents the people of the state. 
Yeah, the Salt Lake Tribune did a story this year breaking down some of the numbers around other demographics in the state and the state legislature. And those gaps are bigger than the party affiliation one. 86% of lawmakers belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but only 60% of the population does. And as far as gender goes, it's about a 50-50 breakdown by men and women statewide, but only 24% of the legislature is women. And when we look at racial and ethnic makeup, 95% of lawmakers are white. Nearly a quarter of the state's population, though, are racial and ethnic minorities. And all of the people of color in the legislature are Democrats. This power imbalance among demographics is not unique to Utah. This happens across the country. And it's no surprise that the groups that set up these systems of government, white, male, Latter-day Saints, are still the people with the most amount of power. Like we talked about in episode one, the district maps are drawn by the Republican legislature. And people argue on both sides about whether this makeup is important or not. But the bottom line is that the legislature does not look like the population it serves in terms of gender, religious beliefs, and race. But in terms of partisanship, it's a little closer. So we know the state is changing. It's becoming more racially diverse, and a smaller percentage of people are Latter-day Saints. So we'll just have to see how much the legislature changes with it. So, Sonia, what did we learn? We learned that California and Utah, as different as they may be, operate in a lot of the same ways, and that's because they both have supermajorities. When you're a supermajority, you can do whatever you want because you don't need the minority party's votes to pass something, and you can override a governor's veto. So if you're a Democrat represented by a Democrat in Utah, your elected officials have very little power and therefore your voice can only really be represented through your senator or representative openly criticizing the GOP when they disagree or by passing bills that are palatable to Republicans. And as for how well you're represented by that supermajority that makes all the decisions for everyone, you can look at their response to the 2018 ballot initiatives, which Utahns supported and lawmakers changed. You might also look at the demographics of the legislature and how that compares to the state as a whole. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. The show was edited by Caroline Ballard and produced by Roddy Nickpour. Chelsea Naughton is the podcast executive producer and Palak Jaiswal is our digital producer. Our news director is Elaine Clark. State Street is a production of KUER. We also send out a newsletter every week with fun bonus content and plenty of musing about Utah politics. You can sign up for that newsletter at KUER.org slash State Street. You know, I'm going to say how much I love Greg Hughes. You know, we totally disagree on everything, but... We go back a long way, and uh, he's been a terrific speaker. I, f- I feel the same about Jim. He is one of my favorite people to, to at least uh, combat with ideas about, and, and he, is, he is a good man, and I love, uh, I love serving with him. From KUER.